Hey, it's Brandon here and I have some big news. Seven Figure Millennials is now beyond curious. I am so excited for this new brand and I would highly encourage you to go check out episode number 140 for all of the juicy details. But as a teaser for episode 140, the central question for Seven Figure Millennials, the original show from the beginning was, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? I spent over 1,000 hours researching this question and published 139 episodes. And after all of that, I have an answer. And I put together that answer in a legit masterclass that weaves together clips from previous guests all to answer that question. So if you wanna hear my answer, the why behind Beyond Curious and the vision moving forward, go check out episode number 140. But you are here listening to this episode, which I know is amazing, but I would just highly recommend you also check out episode number 140 for the full explanation behind the rebrand. All right, here's your episode. Greetings, my beautiful Seven Figure Millennial podcast listener, and welcome back to another episode of the Seven Figure Millennials podcast, where it is my job to help you prioritize your happiness, health, and relationships while making your biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. I am on my way to seven figures, and I'm sharing with you everything that is working with me along the way. But before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a pre-show listener shout out to Who Sat. Who sat? Interesting name. <laughs> but they said, Brandon and his guests deliver. Brandon has a natural way of teasing out value and having a wonderfully entertaining conversation with his incredible guests. Looking forward to more. So thank you so much, Who Sat, for leaving that review. And if you're listening to this right now and you haven't had a chance to leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform, please take a second to do that right now. Not only will it make my day, I might also give you a pre-show listener shout out and it will also help more people to discover the show. But today, my friend, you are in for a treat. Not that you're always in for a treat, but today is really Really, really cool because you are going to listen in on my conversation with Blair Dunkley. Blair has devoted over 40 years to researching and applying behavioral pattern change, 37 of which he spent developing mind models. As a certified master trainer of life skills coaches and the head of behavioral research at Life Skills College, he has also developed a one-of-a-kind language-based profiling system, which he calls the Blair Dunkley profiling method. During his career, Blair served as the vice president, then president and CEO of Life Skills Colleges, which he grew to 23 campuses across the country. Blair has also developed an international consulting, coaching, and training practice. And in a 10-year period, through training his corporate clients in the use of mind models, he lifted the top line of his client companies by $757 million. His methodologies help people break through barriers, blocks, and beliefs, get unstuck, and minimize frustration and overwhelm. As a result, students and corporate clients alike change their lives and improve business success. And in this episode, I want you to listen for three specific things. Number one, right in the beginning, we dive into Blair's story of growing up being dyslexic and diagnosed as a moronic genius in fifth grade and the story of his dad being in a coma for 14 years and how those tough experiences actually gave birth to the incredible work that Blair does today. Number two, we cover three of Blair's mind models with examples and scenarios of how to use them. And these are the same things that he teaches to his clients. And he even gives an example of someone he coached from being stuck at a $150 million book of business and then using mind models, helping him to go to a billion dollar book of business. So that's thing number two. And thing number three, listen to our conversation about IBC, this 
process he's developed called igniting the buying conversation. And what this is based on is the fact that most people hate to be sold, but they love to buy. Think about that for yourself. How do you like to buy things? You probably like buying, but you probably don't like being pressured into something, right? So if you're listening to this as an entrepreneur, how can you create a culture based on your clients having buying conversations instead of putting them into selling situations where people are feeling pressured? That is the basis of his IBC system, and it's absolutely incredible. So we dive into that and so much more. So please enjoy this incredible and mind-blowing conversation with my friend, Blair Dunkley. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Awesome. Well, Blair Dunkley, welcome to the show. I'm super excited to have you here. Brandon Fong, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Awesome. Well, this is going to be a blast. We're going to cover a ton of incredible things. And for those of you listening right now, I've paid Blair for coaching and I was totally blown away. So I'm so excited to share him and his insights with you. And if you're listening to this, you've already heard some of the intro. You've heard some of uh, Blair's bio. He's worked with billionaires, multi-billion dollar companies responsible for adding over $757 million to the bottom of line of companies uh, by using his mind models. So we'll be talking a lot about mind models on the show, but I was talking Blair to a mutual friend of ours, Jules. And I was like, what is something I can ask Blair that is not like a typical topic that we can just start with be a little bit more fun uh, before we dive into the cool mind models. And she said that you are a master woodworker. And I thought it'd be interesting to ask uh, a little bit about what, why did you get into woodworking and what made you start uh, going down that rabbit hole? Um, Jesus, that's, that's a, a, a very good question. Um, I am I did woodworking way before I actually did mind models. So my dad actually got me into woodworking. It was fun. He didn't get me into it directly, but, oh, Jesus, you're going to find out some stuff about me that I guess I'm coming out of the closet. (laughs) <laughs> cool. Yeah, in a weird way. It's uh, not sexually, trust me. <laughs> um, I'm coming out of the closet. When I was in school, I did very well and very poorly in different aspects, and the teachers didn't understand that. And yes, this is about woodworking, believe it or not. It gets there very quickly, but um, one of the things that I wound up being tested for in grade five was my IQ. And back in the day, they did not have a a good understanding of learning disabilities. I'm dyslexic, which they eventually named and labeled that. But before they named and labeled it as dyslexia, the psychiatrist, I was put through batteries, months of uh, tests once a week down uh, in this uh, building for students that didn't fit in the normal area. So they did this battery of tests. So I was in the office with the psychiatrist, my parents, when he was announcing the results. And back in the day, this is decades before most of you guys were born, but (laughs) I I was actually there and they had legal descriptions of people. 
they said, Mr. and Mrs. Dunkley, your son is both in the moron level, which was true back then. That's how they used to class it, of IQ and genius. So, Mr. and Mrs. Dunkley, you have a moronic genius. And that title has stuck in my brain. Now, yeah, I'm a moron, but it, it has served me extraordinarily well, extraordinarily well. And in woodworking, that was a little bit of genius because in grade nine, I was actually doing something that my shop teacher kept on saying, you can't do Blair, you can't do this. And what I did is I made a checkered um, bowl. So I hand planed, you got to get the, these things flat. Okay, so the, the glue, back then the glue wasn't as good as it is today. But you got to get it flat, flat, so the, the wood will actually hold together. So every time you put the thing together, it's got to be flat and well glued. And that was the inspiration because I got a, um, well, an award in grade nine for a shop project. I was acknowledged for that at the um, um, graduation ceremonies. So it was bizarre. I'd never been up on stage for anything. Mm. Like academically, I'm not, it, that wasn't it, but creatively, I did well, and that was the first thing that that got it. And I still have that bowl today. Wow, but that's awesome! Taken off and gone. And my dog brought home a root ball, and I turned it into a little thing here. I mean, I can show you. I, it's just around the corner, but whatever. <laughs> you can like, share it afterwards. Yeah. So, um, and I built my mom a gorgeous, gorgeous bookcase. And mm. I just built it for her library, and she's since passed, and so I have it now. Also, I mean, I'm, I love that, and I do amazing renos. That's incredible. So so you had this experience growing up where you weren't the person that was, you know, put in the proper categories in school. You were called the moronic genius, and you kind of found this outlet through woodworking. Does that have anything to do with you getting into mind models at all, or was that are those two completely separate things? Um. Yes and no. The the way that I think in woodworking, um, I had to figure out problems and I had to design things because um, going through the, the, like I do design builds. So that's what I do. So if I create a piece of furniture and it's all, you know, high end furniture, it's not, you know, just two sticks put together and whatever. I do high end furniture. And um, I enjoy that because it, it's the detail of it. And I try, I recognize that I have to have three things have to be there. Myself, I have to show up well. I have mm -hmm. to understand my wood and I have to understand the situation that I'm in. I just mm -hmm. was erasing something that was on my board before we started this thing and then had three circles. And it's about self, other, and situation. And woodworking was the first place where I realized that the situation, and the situation is literally the relative humi humidity of the room I'm working in, sure. that I have very little control over, but wood is alive. It, it, it even like dried out, it will pick up moisture. And so the size of it will change. So when you're building fine furniture and you want a perfect 
uh, joint on it, you have to do that joint within hours of cutting it. So the wood doesn't swell or change the dimension of it because I'm down to generally a 32nd of an inch, if not into the thousands of inches for accuracy because I enjoy that. So that's what I wind up doing. It's just well, that's that's incredible because that. I, I mean, I per, I see a parallel. I see a direct parallel with the work you do with mind models because you have such finesse. You have so much. It, the, the mind is, you know, kind of the analogy is like the wood is like understanding the environment that it's in the context that it's in. And they're so uniquely related. So I love that, that actually, I, I, w- I was hoping that it would somehow connect, but I'm glad that it did. <laughs> but so, so for, so for those that are listening right now, we say the word mind model, and I know we'll be diving into very specific mind models that people could use, but if you had to explain what a mind model is to like a 10 year old, how would you explain what a mind model is? I probably wouldn't explain it to a 10-year-old, okay. but I think it's <laughs> for an adult to understand it. And sure. I do it in comparison to mindset. I used to be a mindset facilitator. I got burnt by mindset because my dad went into a coma and uh, was in a coma for 14 years before he passed. And I had been a mindset uh, facilitator uh, for four years at that point. Plus, I'd already become a master trainer. Well, not a master trainer, but a, a life skills coach and then a coach trainer during that time, uh, ramping up to my dad going into coma. But um, mindset was the thing that I was leaning on because everybody was saying it's like the best things in sliced bread. And then when my dad went into coma and I collapsed, everything broke in my mindset. And it was, I needed a better way, just flat out better way. So people that talk about mindset, well, good luck until you have a crisis in your life, then your mindset is going to leave you and you're stuck. You know, you have nothing else to turn to. Well, I fortunately had life skills, which was, you know, $42 million worth of research done by the government of Canada over five years um, that identified 362 core competencies. So that was a big deal for me and um, got me out of that issue, but didn't get me to where I really wanted to go, which was the driver for me to get my mindset back, but something that wasn't bullshit. Because at the end of the day, my trainer, I spent time trying to fix myself. She did the same exercises on me to try and get my mindset back. And then she had the audacity to tell me that Blair, you just don't believe enough. Mm. And I, I, was, I was at Life Skills College at the time. 80% of our students were potentially suicidal. I had to do things that worked. You can't tell somebody that you don't believe enough because it would be like telling somebody to go out, here's a loaded gun, go kill yourself. Right. You know, or you know, you know, play Russian roulette with it. See, see what happens. And I go, no, 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 you can't do that. And that was my core driver for me changing my life. See, mind models are a collection of extensively tested thought frameworks and skills and behaviors that are in that intentionally, intentionally transform people's lives. They're kind of like a magnifying glass. And they let you easily focus on what's working and what's not, and almost instantly change. Mind models are tools that help you build your future right now. 
not down the road, not practicing forever, not developing this mindset bullshit that everybody says is the best thing since sliced bread. Listen, if you're if life is going well and you've got a good mindset, fine. It's a lot better than nothing, but it's terrible for today's world. It does not adapt well. Mind models are not mindset in disguise. I am not repackaging mindset in some other way. This is brand new stuff. You've never seen it before. It doesn't exist anyplace else. I spent 17 and a half years researching and building this this stuff. You see, mindset is belief-based. Mindset is only internally verifiable to you. I can't see your mindset. Mm. But when you do mind models, you, I, anybody who knows what a mind model is, can see that in others or themselves. And they're always externally verifiable. And that's the three things that life skills gave me is identifiable, repeatable, and duplicatable. Mindset isn't. Not necessarily. It sometimes is, but it isn't. A lot of the time it isn't. So I needed something that freaking worked. And you know what? Mind models are not the state of mind. They are actually identifiable, repeatable, and duplicatable. Uh, mind models actually get results on an on a repeatable basis because everything that I did, I tested at Life Skills College back in the day, and I had you know um, hundreds of people to test this stuff on. We had eighty percent. If if a mind model did not meet the requirement of eighty percent effectiveness, it was pitched. So am, am I accurate in saying that mindset you view and I also view is kind of more generalized. You kind of say, oh, you need to have a better mindset. You need to be in, in the right mind state or whatever it is. But a mind model is a very, it applies in a very specific context and you have multiple mind models that can deal with different situations. Is that an accurate way of saying it for? Yes, because it's repeatable and repeatable means that you can do it over and over again and get similar results but right. is applicable to any situation you want to test it in, you can test these. So when I teach people mind models, I tell them one thing, don't trust me, test it. Mm-hmm. Because if it doesn't work for you, it's either an ineffective mind model or I taught you something that didn't work. But right now I know they all work at least 80% of the time. So you yep. probably pick something that didn't work in your situation. Got it. Okay. So for everybody listening right now, Blair has a ton of these mind models and I've been very fortunate to kind of work with him over the past few weeks. We've been in a, a group together and I've seen him explain them. And so I want part of my job today is I was trying to figure out, okay, what are the most valuable mind models that I think would be most applicable? So I got an early review copy of Blair's book and in the book, he outlines 23 unhealthy self-defeating mindsets. And so what I did Blair ahead of time is I kind of picked out a few of them that I thought of these detrimental mindsets that I think plague entrepreneurs. And so I thought what a good way to explain and start to use your mind models would be to choose one of those mindsets that I think are, are defeating for entrepreneurs. And then we can explain the mind models that can then combat them. So the first one that really stuck out to me like a sore thumb when I was reading through the detrimental mindsets is the comparing yourself to others mindset. Because as entrepreneurs, we always want to build bigger businesses or have the more, more things. So can you just explain, first of all, what comparing yourself to mindset is? Um, and then we can kind of go from there to then leverage the mind models on how to overcome that. Well, the number one thing that happens with comparing yourself to others' mindset is you're stuck in your why. By the way, I also hate whys. 
So I, I did six and a half years of research on question concepts and whys are the only question concept that will continuously hold you stuck. And question concept is meaning like the, the frame that you ask questions. So questions starting with why, is that what you mean when you say question no, concept? No, it is the research to the back. So that turned into what is a question? Because I did fundamental, <clears throat> fundamental research. And the question that I had to eventually ask is, what is a question? Sure. And I did years of, re- of trying to find somebody else doing some breakdown of this. Nobody has. They just ex- they expect that who, what, when, where, why, and how are self-explanatory. Sure. Well, what if every thought, every utterance out of your mouth is filtered, both statement or question, is filtered through one of those six processes. That's how you think. Mm-hmm. And that's how I'm able to profile you when, when we were on that session uh, and I did some coaching with you. I need only 10 to 30 seconds of your language pattern to start telling you all about yourself. Right. So the why question concept flips into judgment. That gives reasons, excuses, rationalizations, and justifications. So if you're going into comparing, like comparing yourself to others, oh my God, you have to, why am I not so good? Why are they better? Why this? Why that? And almost everybody defaults into that. Mm-hmm. So let's stop, pardon me for saying it this way, but stop the self mindfuck because you're <laughs> just messing with your head. Right, And you you feel bad because you're not optimizing yourself. You're saying, I need to work harder. I need to do all this. I need to, I need to, I need to, which is all technically like, is that a reason, excuse, rationalization or justification? It's definitely a rationalization and justification for why you're not doing as well as you think you should. But it gives you no context, no information, no direction to be able to move forward to mm-hmm. nothing. Yet people say you have to figure out your big why. Well, again, fuck that noise. <laughs> it doesn't work. You know what? There are thousands of people I've met that are so fed up with this whole thing. And some coaches are literally saying, if your why isn't big enough to make you cry, it ain't big enough. And I go, fuck you. Like it doesn't work. Okay. Like honest to God, they're messing with your mind. Get out of their area, figure out somebody who can start identifying your what's and how's. And the three mind models that are absolutely essential to get yourself out of that are these following three. And they're all what based. But the first one is effective versus ineffective. Effective versus ineffective is critical because you just ask yourself a simple question. What is it that I'm doing that's effective? Or what works? You can you can transpose these two words. I've tested them intensively for years. Um, effective and works can be swapped out. So what works, what doesn't work? What's effective, what's ineffective? Just ask yourself that and you'll start getting data points and you can change. The next one 
that you can do it. Let me, let one. me just, pa- let me just pause sure. you there really quick, Blair. Yeah. So, so somebody is comparing themselves to others and they're basically they're in this loop of just constantly comparing, asking why. And, and what you're saying is that this doesn't do anything proactive. It's not, it's just this endless danger loop of making things worse and worse. And so if you pause that and you recognize that you have that mindset that you're comparing yourself and you swap it out with the mind model of effective versus ineffective, it allows you to look at it from an externally verifiable perspective from what you're saying is, is, is what I'm doing effective. You're already jumping, Brandon, you just jumped to the second mind model. Okay. But it's externally verifiable. Oh, that's right. I, I know. I, I'm starting to use your language now because I've, I've hung out with you a decent amount now. But so, so far, is that accurate in saying that like it, it, the, the step one is to recognize the thoughts that are happening and step two is to replace that with language that actually lead you to an outcome instead of just kind of being lost in this danger loop of, of, of eternal. It, it may or may not lead you to an outcome, but it'll lead you to the next thing that you already telegraphed here, which is perfect. It moves you to externally verifiable information because it's externally, externally verifiable or internally verifiable. Whys are only ever internally verifiable. Now, you've got to understand that whys are, can be disguised. And every other question concept that I talk about are, can be disguised as everyone else. So I'm going to yell at you here and you cool. tell me which question concept I'm actually using. Okay. Okay. What did you do that for Brandon? What? Tell me right now. Okay. So which question concept was it? Not which word, but which concept. And um, if you just feel it, you'll probably know. What are my options for the concepts? Like who, like, what, when, where, why, and how? So, so, but you used you used a what was you said what right in the beginning of that I sentence? Did. Is that so? But, but which that, question but saying, concept is it? Ah, uh, okay. So so you're saying that okay. So I get it. So the word that you're using is not necessarily the question concept that you are perfect. Yes. Okay. So which one is it? So the, the what the did question you do that for? Tell me. That's a why. That's right. Got it. Okay. How do you know? Because it's, it's, (laughs) I don't know. It's accusatory. It is like kind of inaccurate. I don't know. (laughs) It's just my gut reaction. You felt like you had to defend yourself, right? Sure. Sure. You felt judged by me. Mm -hmm. Even though it's abstract, there is no context to this, yet you still have these emotions because wise always must load emotions first. Mm. And they're almost always negative emotions. So now you're in a negative spiral just by the question concept. And people who are highly successful frequently use why, but it's a disguised what. So Mm. they're not processing it in the part of their brain that processes whys, but until you get this distinction, you don't know the difference. Hmm. That's how come I spent six and a half years figuring this shit out. Right. Okay. Wow. So, okay. So, so just to reiterate that again for the second time is that the questions that you're asking, it's not necessarily when you say question concept, it's not necessarily the word you're using, but rather the overarching theme of what it's really asking. So whys are disguised in, in many other different ways. So, and so, so are what's and how's and everything else. Okay. Okay, uh, maybe, maybe uh, I'm trying to have a 
maybe we'll have to do a separate conversation about how we can map that all out. But I want to make sure we keep going it's with, with them. There's four columns for each one of the six question concepts. So it's a matrix of four by six, okay. which actually proves a very fascinating thing that there are in, in the success formula, there is a success formula in language. And I've tested that with billionaires and super rich people and people who are moving up the ladder. And one of them was actually a Roman Catholic priest that I trained and his language pattern showed the success formula early on. And then guess what? He winds up going and getting recruited to the Vatican out of uh, the Northwest territories, out of like stuff that's like a hundred miles above the Arctic circle. And he gets found and recruited to go work at the Vatican. Like how the hell does that happen? Yeah. So it's, it's, based, it's based on their language pattern. And it, it, that's another thing we didn't, I didn't, when Blair alluded to the coaching pattern thing that he does, Blair has this crazy thing that he does where he talks to you for 30 seconds and he can understand just the way that you're articulating yourself, what's going on in your brain. So it's, it's kind of creepy, <laughs> but awesome at the same time uh, as, as many people that have, uh, have gone through Blair's sessions understand. So, okay. So uh, we talked about effective versus ineffective. So these are this is Blair's three E's, right? So effective versus yeah. ineffective, ex, uh, uh, external versus internally verifiable, and the third of the three E's is evaluation ev- versus judgment. And wise have to put you into judgment. Okay. Now, if you're not in judgment and you're using the word why, then you're actually using a disguised what or how. Mm. So that gets a little confusing until you know what the whole thing is. Then you've got it clear as a bell. You just test it and you go, Oh, right. That's what it is. And you go, Oh, right. I'm stuck in my Y loop or geez, that was actually a disguised. What? Oh, what? Right. Effective versus ineffective, externally verifiable, not internally verifiable because all Y's are only internally verifiable. They're always only opinions. They're not facts. And people can't get ahead in life until they know what their core drivers are. And their core drivers are always externally verifiable because they will always generate from this internal state to this external state, their behaviors that are always externally verifiable. Hmm. Yeah, cool, isn't it? Yeah, okay. So for evaluation versus judgment, Basically, it's it's the the frame of mind that you're coming at from the problem, and there's a big. Can you can you just explain to everybody listening, like wh- how you perceive the difference in evaluation versus judgment, and what the difference is when you when you use those in your world? Well, if you want to collect information, you evaluate what, and you use the language of what worked and what didn't work. So, you what worked, then what might I do differently? What else might I do? Something completely different. These are are all language patterns, phrases that you can use and apply to yourself to get you unstuck and resourceful. I don't drive towards problems, uh, problem-solving, decision-making. That's that sort of thing. What I do is problem solving is great. I drive towards problem solving, but not decision making. I drive towards somebody who wants to get resourceful. Because in today's world, life is changing too fast. The second you solve the problem, it's probably almost obsolete. Mm-hmm. So you can't apply it over and over again. And that's this whole thing that everybody loves about certainty. Well, certainty doesn't work either. 
Not anymore. It used to in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, early 80s, you could probably get away with certainty still in the, in the 1980s. But so many of the millennials are stuck on certainty and want a level of certainty. Yet, what happens is clarity leverages you because clarity is a questioning process. And certainty is all about fixed states. I'm yep. certain about this. It's about a statement, not a question. So this we just let. So we just jumped over into another mind model. So I'll put an ask, a pin on the other stuff. So clarity versus certainty is another mind model. So basically, and that actually goes back into. Sorry, I, I was I was wanting to get that back into. No, it's all good. Evaluation versus judgment. Yep. Because it absolutely helps you. Because if you're asking questions, you'll be likely in an evaluative state. Especially, what might I do differently? Notice that that's a question, not a statement. Right. But a judgment is, geez, I didn't do that very well. Mm -hmm. Um, What caused me to screw up? Well, now it's a negative question. Mm -hmm. It might be beneficial. It's a what, but it depends on how you take it. Because your answer will determine whether or not you did a disguised why or a a what. So, Mm -hmm. you know, what caused me to screw up? I'm just stupid. I'm just dumb. I can't figure this shit out. I'm not capable. That's a why. Mm-hmm. But if you go, what caused me to figure this out? And you go, or not to figure this out is I'm missing information pieces. That's a list of one or more things or events. Those are actually your what's. Yeah. There, it, every time I talk to Blair, it kind of breaks my brain a little bit. And I have to think I have to like just pause and maybe take a nap afterwards so that I can figure <laughs> out what the hell just happened. Um, but, but I would just encourage you to listen to if this, if this stuff is, is uh, a lot right now, I would, first of all, encourage you to re-listen to, to just this section that Blair is already explaining because it's taken me a few repetitions to, to fully understand, not, not fully understand, but have a greater understanding of what he's talking about. But the one thing I want to highlight here is that we always talk about the internal dialogue that's happening in our head, right? And how important the internal dialogue is. But another, the next level to that, I believe is what questions are you asking yourself in the internal dialogue? And like what, what Blair is talking about here is understanding that there might be certain questions that you're asking yourself that are actually disguised in ways that might not be helpful for you. So this gives you these give you tools to understand the questions that you're asking yourself. And if they are, as using a mind model, are they effective or are they ineffective? Are they external ver- externally verifiable? That's a mouthful versus internally verifiable. And are you evaluating your stuff or are you judging your stuff? So I don't know. That was just kind of me putting a, putting a bow on top of that. But is there anything you want to add to that, Blair? <laughs> I think you did a wonderful job of tying a bow. Cool. Perfect. Cool. Well, awesome. Well, yeah. So, well, so those I, are just. I told you in the other group the other day, I want to hire <laughs> you as the guy that ties the bow on my shit. Oh, sweet, my sweet, sweet. I'll come in. I'll come in and I'll, I'll do that with you. Um, yeah. This is super, super powerful. So, okay. So, so let's, let's just uh, go back to the mindset. So Blair, I'm talking to you. I'm your coaching client. And I'm, t- we're, we're, you know, we're, we're on the seven figure millennials podcast, right? So it's like, oh, I've been listening to Brandon's content and like, I'm just getting started in business. And there are people that are doing so much better than I am right now. They have all this stuff validated and they're crushing it in their business. And like, I don't know what's going on. So how coach me through how I can begin to use these mind models to correct the, that level of thinking. Super. Can I just ask you a question? Sure. So on this podcast, what's working for you? Getting like incre- to, to the, you know, the, this podcast that this guy, Brandon Fong is doing. Mm. So what's working for you? What are you pulling from it? 
I'm uh, I, I'm starting to take small action and and putting together like a list after every episode and thinking about what I can begin to implement. See, listen, like if you can just pause that one because okay. <laughs> that is me guiding your brain into a what, and you said list. Because mm. what's che- always must generate a list of one or more things or events. Mm. And that's what you just gave me. Now, yeah. if I want to mess you up, all I have to do is say, so why are you listening to, to this guy, Brandon Fong, anyway? Mm. Just answer that one. Uh, just because I don't like my job right now and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about jumping into entrepreneurship and I am looking for some, some people that have great content so that I can begin to change my situation. That sounds good. But did you notice that you had to position that negatively right off the hop? Mm. Yeah. To answer that question? Sure. So I don't like my job. This is what I'm doing. It's not this, this stuff doesn't work for me. And it's all what isn't there. Right. And that means it's a very large jump over to what is there. But when I asked you the what question, all of a sudden you gave me lists that are executable now, right now. Mm. Like within five minutes of us getting off this call, you can do it. Whereas the other one, what's the change? What's the shift in yourself and how you think? Yeah. It's all internal. It's all internal states that you told me in your why. Hmm. It's not externally verifiable. It's not testable. It's your opinion, but I don't really care about your opinion that much. Like, I hope you have a good one eventually, but at the end of the day, I work with people so that they get resourceful. The first one left you in a resourceful state. The the next one left you in a stuck state of just explaining why you are the way you are. Right. Yeah, it's so powerful. And I think like if, if somebody could take something away, for, at least if I were to choose for someone listening right now, if they could take something away so far, it's just like, uh, look at the kind of questions that you're asking yourself, because those are the containers that will yield the results that you're getting, right? So like, just okay. be very careful. I want to just build on that a little bit. Yeah, here. go for it. Said earlier on, every thought, every utterance out of your mouth, every one of them, whether it be a statement or a question, is filtered through a question concept. Mm. Psychologists haven't figured this shit out. It took me 17 and a half years of research to find this stuff out because at Life Skills College, 80% of our people were potentially suicidal. So if I didn't get it right, like highly effective, right out of the gate, somebody would die. Mm-hmm. And we got the worst, the worst referred to us. And we didn't lose anybody in 35 years. So this stuff works. Now, it doesn't work perfectly. It's tested to 80%. The reason that it was tested and left at 80% because I had this guy who was suicidal and a math genius, and he told me that if you have things where he asked me a question, how many times can you basically help somebody through before they're really going to try and kill themselves? And I said, well, I've got probably like three attempts to try and work them through before they get too frustrated and go do something stupid. And he said, great, just work everything out to 80%. And I went, how come? Because I didn't ask why, I asked how come. What, what causes that to be true? The other version of how come. So what causes that to be true? He said, listen, 
If you evaluate every single time at the 80%, you will go 80% this time, the next, and it didn't work. Well, you still have another 80%, but you've increased your probability of moving closer because you've evaluated what didn't work in the first question to move it to the second question. And if the second one doesn't work, you're going to move it to the third. And the probability by the third time is right around 99% probable that you will get very close to a resourceful state at that point. Mm. And we haven't lost anybody as a result. And so mm. in working with business leaders and whatnot, it's incredibly powerful because they leverage out of their stuck states very quickly. So another thing that I'm picking up on is a distinction that I haven't picked up on before is that these question concepts, these mind models are all designed to ask you questions to lead you down a path of resourcefulness, of understanding how you can solve the problem differently than the way you were thinking about it before based on your previous questions. Absolutely true, because the most powerful state is not a solution. The most powerful state is resourcefulness. resourcefulness. Awesome. And there's two others that I would throw in there because mm -hmm. the powerful state that resor that resourcefulness sort of falls out of is curiosity. And so if you don't engage curiosity, you have to be stuck. Mm -hmm. But if you're resourceful, you're triggering curiosity. The second you trigger curiosity, people with depression, limbic loop traumas, like the back of their brain, they're, they're constantly there. Um, I don't know if you know of a guy, Mike Dillard, but he had me on his podcast. He claimed I saved his life because of my mind models. He had a uh, brain trauma where he was frozen in his limbic loop and he hadn't slept normally in 10 months, over 10 months. And he was dying as a result of that. Well, I gave him mind models and a methodology to apply them and in two nights, like the second night, he phones me up and says, Blair, Blair, it was amazing. I just about fell asleep without taking my meds. <laughs> but I got so excited, I woke myself up. <laughs> it was crazy. Anyway, it was, it was, and the next night he actually fell asleep without, like, you know, a whole lot of, you know, um, sleeping pills that, that would normally kill you or I. He's taken them by the handful. Candy. Yeah, like candy to, to get them down. Cool. Well, okay. So I, I, there's so much more I want to dive into. So I want to be careful how much I ask because I know we can go into other things. So like, let's do, if we could do kind of a quicker example of cementing the, these these three E's that you showed us uh, with another example from the book. So another, another unhealthy mindset is the deferred slash conditional happiness mindset. So can you oh, quickly, quick, quick, quickly explain what that mindset is? And then maybe you and I could role play again uh, out that situation using mind models. I'll be happy when this happens. I'll be happy when I've made my, I can relax. I can enjoy my life when I've made my first million or yep. when I've made my first hundred thousand or whatever it is. It's always conditional to something that's outside of your direct control, but it seems like you have control over it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like money, we think we have control over. Well, we do, but we don't because all of the conditions to generate the impact have to be there. But what happens if you change the conditional logic on that into I'm happy getting, like be happy on the journey. Mm -hmm. 
not when it happens. And, and most, on, most young entrepreneurs always go, I got to get out of my situation. I hate this. And when I am, I'll be happy. And then they get out of it and they're not any happier. How come? Yep. Because they never freaking learned the skills of how to be happy in the first place. Yep. <laughs> it's yeah. so funny. Okay. So what do you want to do with that? Well, I, let me, I'm just really tempted to say, I mean, Blair, one of these concepts I've been thinking about for a while, and this is, I think this is going to be the work of the next few years of what I'm focused on is like, I like, I don't know if you're familiar with Tim Ferriss wrote the book, the four hour chef. And it's like, it's designed to teach people accelerated learning by using cooking as a mechanism to teach accelerated learning. And so one of the things that I want to do, and I haven't talked about this on the podcast yet, but like, I'm starting to think about how I can leverage entrepreneurship to teach happiness, you know, because it's like, as, as entrepreneurs, we have all these opportunities and we have these quick learning cycles that were happening because we're putting ourselves out there. We're creating content. Things aren't working. Products aren't working and leveraging those as an opportunity to practice happiness and like have a methodology behind that. So anyways, I just, I just really appreciate you sharing that because that's, that's something that I've been thinking a lot about, but um, yeah, I mean, I can, I can go, do you want, do you want to ask me a question so I can, as like a coaching well, client? Of, I just want to make a, a fill in here if you don't mind, but sure, go for it. When like the byproducts of mind models are really the thing that messes with my clients' minds the most. It's all the indirection. And happiness is one of them. And I mean, you and I both know Jules and Jules just goes, you know, I taught her a few of the mind models and I'm working with her from time to time. And she is, she keeps on saying she's a freaking genius. She's brilliant, you know, and she keeps on and for those listening, you can, you can listen to Jules on episode three. So check out, check out Jules episode if you haven't, but continue. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, no worries, but please check out her episode. She's <laughs> a smart cookie. And she keeps on saying, Blair, I'm smiling more now that I've met you. I keep on applying your mind models and life just gets simpler. Like I get to do what I want to do and figure out myself so much faster because mind models actually go and they compress time Yep. because these are the ways that if you have a great life at the end of the day, you know, you will probably be doing most of these mind models subconsciously. Yep. That's how I figured this shit out. You, you figure out, you notice people that are working and then you just break down what the hell is that behavior. And I took a look at it from language patterns and everything else that went with it. And I go, it seems obvious to me, but psychologists come up with these brilliant theories and they do something completely different. So I went and studied quantum physics and realized that, you know, quantum physics is always testable. So it has to be able to be identified, named and labeled, which is another mind model. Naming, labeling, repeatable, getting similar results when you do it over and over again, and duplicatable, in other words, transferable to others. Mm-hmm. And those fundamental three principles means you can take a ton of pressure off yourself because all of a sudden you test things out and you find something that works and it's repeatable mm-hmm. and it's how you think, not what to think, but how to think. Because that's the thing that leverages people into resourceful states is how you think. And psychologists and everybody talks about, well, some people talk about how to's, but 99% of it, it's actually what to do, not how to do it. Yeah. So that's the difference. 
Awesome. Well, okay. So let's, let's, let's role play out a really quick scenario. And if you're listening to this, listen to how Blair asks the questions, because that's, that's really how we're going to apply this. And then we'll, we'll stick within the context of the three E's. And then I want to go into some IBC stuff, Blair. Hopefully we can, we can cover a little bit of that before we, we wrap up. Uh, 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 so, so, okay, Blair, I, I, um, I'm a 35 year old entrepreneur. I have a fairly successful business, but man, this guy I went to high school with, uh, or no, actually, no, I'm using the wrong mindset. Um, I, I, I will be so happy when I finally get to the point where I have a $10 million a year business. Like I just, I'm waking up, I'm grinding, I'm, I'm crushing it right now, but like, I'm just so focused on, on hitting that $10 million thing. And then I think when I hit, hit that point, I think I'll finally be able to go on vacation with my family and I do some of these other. Yes. So what makes you happy when you hit that? I'll have a lot of money and I'll be able to uh, have the freedom of, of being able to do whatever I want with my family with no limitations. Have you ever tested that idea out by talking to somebody else who has a $10 million a year company? No. Might you consider doing that? Probably. Um, another idea here, if you don't mind, can I ask you another question? Yeah, of course. So here's the question is, what stops you from being happy along the way? Uh, all the stress as an entrepreneur, I guess, is just putting out all these fires, I guess, stop my happiness. So when you say putting out all these fires, how many people are you dealing with on a daily basis? I have my core team of maybe uh, 10 people that I talk to, and then I have, I have the clients that I'm working with as well. Right. I hear that. And do you feel completely responsible for everybody, your 10 people and all your clients? Some, to some extent, yes. Then one of the things to whatever extent that you feel fully responsible for that, I might suggest you might want to think about if you're over-managing or micromanaging your people and taking on responsibility for your clients' results. Fully. Mm. Because not all of this is within your ability to control. It can only be, pardon me, it can only be influenced. Because everything outside of you, you can't control anybody else. You can only influence them. But it doesn't even sound like you're actually controlling yourself. So circumstances are the biggest interference to your happiness rather than generating your happiness through you controlling yourself and creating your own set of circumstances and situations. Hmm. Does that make sense to you? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, so we'll, we'll pause in the role play. So like, so what were some of the mind models that were at play there in, in leading me to that, to, to that conclusion? Well, alignment was a big one. It's, did you notice every time I just said, um, do you mind if I ask you a question? Right. Yep. That is a critical question to ask because if I just start filling you in and telling you shit, you're not going to be curious. Mm -hmm. So, but if I pre-frame your brain into an acceptance of a question that's coming, in fact, anticipating it, I've got you generally in a what state. Mm -hmm. So now you're curious and I've, I've fired off curiosity. I've fired off a more resourceful brain. 
Right. I've gotten you being able to problem solve more effectively. And I'm actually beginning an empowerment process where you get to self-discover. I just guide a process. I don't teach shit. I do teach mind models, but I don't fix people. You fix yourself because at the end of the day, you are the one with the problem, not me. Mm-hmm. So you've got to figure out how to connect your neurons in your brain to get the neural pathways so that you connect the dots. Yeah, That's what I'm very good at doing is just asking questions that cause other people's brain to connect the dots. Yeah. And studying mind models will kind of give you that superpower. So, I mean, I, I guess just generally, if you kind of watch the questions that Blair asked in that, in that role-playing scenario, it was like, taking taking this kind of vague idea of happiness very unspecific super general out there and leveraging questions that were more that were that were how and what based questions to get me to have very clear understanding of what actually could be done to move forward instead of just kind of having the deferred happiness mindset so awesome Thanks. Thanks so much for that, Blair. Okay. So I, I know we, we don't, we don't have that much time left, but the last thing I wanted to, I know you have entire seminars, entire day long training on this entire thing, but I would love to go into briefly about uh, IBC or igniting the buying conversation and kind of discuss uh, what that is. So, I mean, you guys heard from the beginning, Blair consults with companies and he goes in and helps these companies to totally shift the way that they are going from a sales-based conversation to a buying-based conversation. So Blair, can you kind of explain what IBC is and uh, take take us from there? Well, igniting the buying conversation is quite literally that. I mean, the question that I ask everybody initially is, do you like being sold? And the answer that I've gotten statistically over, over 30 years of testing, it's been constantly going from when I started 40%, and this is back in the 1980s, um, 40% of the the people, and by the way, this is with top salespeople, 40% of the top salespeople liked being sold back in the 80s. To today, 99% of the people hate being sold, again, with top um, salespeople. But sales training has barely shifted at all in that time. Yet it goes from 40% to almost zero. And yet when you ask the question, do you like to buy? Do you like or love to buy? You'll get 98% of the people raising their hands saying, yes, I love to or like to buy. 2% don't. Like, and it sorry for the stereotyping here. It's just data points here, guys. This isn't prejudice. This is just data. Scottish people, engineers, Jewish people. Uh, people have a tendency to be in that 2% category. Interesting. <laughs> and, and it just like, it, it's like, Jesus, this stereotype tends to be, but the other one that isn't in there are engineers. Like that's not in the stereotype, but engineers fall into that group too. They just like to have their cash in hand. Some of them don't, like most of them are fine. They fit, they fit into here, but out of that 2%, you'll find like 60% of those people in one of those three categories. Interesting. So it was just weird when I did yeah. that stuff. So, so people love to buy, but they hate to sell. And you framed the entire training around helping companies to create buying situations instead of selling situations. Is that well, accurate? Technically, they're conversations. Conversations, yes. Yep. You know, it's a buying conversation versus a selling situation. 
Mm. So you go into a company, what does that look like? How do you begin to shift that conversation to more buying conversations than selling situations? Well, I literally go in there and ask their sales team if I've got a contract, jumping into it already, not getting it. But once I've got it, uh, the first thing I do is I, I teach them safety versus comfort. That's another mind model. And I'm not going to get into that because it, you got to understand the difference between safety and comfort because people have to be safe, but uncomfortable enough to be able to choose to go a different way because mm-hmm. you don't develop, you don't learn. And buying is always a change process. So there's going to be a minimum level of discomfort with the buying process, but um, it can also be very exciting. And it depends on on naming and labeling is another mind model that I use in there. So that the, um, I call them ignition coaches, not salespeople. So, because they're igniting a buying conversation and they're ignition coaches. They ignite that buying conversation. And what they wind up doing is, is naming and labeling how that person is going in their brain. They don't have to share that with their customer or prospect, but they have to be able to determine where they are and what's driving them. And so they go through that naming and labeling, and then they go into ask versus tell. They have to know that telling is selling. Asking questions helps a problem-solving process, which is actually buying. So you want to get people curious. And the power of curiosity is crazy because it actually drives the power of choice. And the power of choice is the thing that people need to be able to do. But if you drive people into decisions, as most people um, in most sales companies and trainings do, they want the person to make a decision to buy. It feels manipulative. So people know this. So quit trying to do that because in just, again, tested results, people between um, 15 to 35% of cold clients coming in will refund when you're buying a high-end ticket uh, item. They'll just go, I got talked into this. I don't like it. And almost everywhere you can force a company to refund you the money within 10 days of a purchase, almost everywhere. Now, when people choose, you have like 2%. And it's usually because they can't figure out their financing. They can't put that deal together. But it's 2% refund rate. So 35, well, between 15 and 35%, down to 2%, you get to retain it. But the weird thing is your numbers, your sales numbers, like just in four minutes, or sorry, four months of training people, I wound up uh, moving from an internationally recognized sales training company. I was brought in and I just, I didn't have time to actually get them all trained up. I just broke it down and taught them incremental pieces over four months. And their sales in that four month period went up 20% where they'd been flat for three years. So it's, that's 20% to the top line almost immediately. And the refund rates went down. Yeah. So, so so here, here comes my synthesis for, for, for people listening. So basically what I've come to understand from Blair's IBC is 
it's basically all comes down to empowering people to make a decision rather than pushing them into a corner and making them buy. No, it's no, it's not. It's not about, it's not about empowering them to make a decision. It's empowering them to make a choice. Mm, Choice is very different than a decision. Decisions are almost always externally. You, you feel like you have to make a decision. Whereas choices, you want to make a choice. Okay, that's the key driver driving. Yeah, okay, okay. So so re- restating that then, empowering people to make a choice rather than a decision versus, um, you know, kind of forcing them to sell something or forcing them to buy something. Um, and I, I also kind of, you, you, you went through it really quickly, but hopefully I can kind of catch this. But you said that the nine models that you use was namely versus labeling, ask versus tell were, were some of the, the key ones. And I know we didn't- versus comfort. Okay. And I know, I know we didn't go over them. So I'm just going to kind of assume it's just that the, the, the general conversation that people are having is understanding where they currently are through naming and labeling, and then asking questions to empower them to understand the, their current situation with more clarity. Um, and then eventually giving them the safety, um, to, or, or I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm using the wrong word safety or, or comfort to actually make them feel, uh, empowered to make a choice that is right for them. They have to feel safe but a little bit uncomfortable. Mm, Okay. And when that happens, they are prepared to make a choice as opposed to delay. Mm -hmm. They want to get out of that discomfort because they don't like that discomfort, but they feel empowered to choose not to fight and and, uh, be uncomfortable. And what sales does, it tries to get them comfortable with a decision, after they go away, they feel very uncomfortable with the decision if they're going to, you know, uh, come back and ask for their money back. Whereas they they have buyer's remorse. Mm-hmm. And there's almost no buyer's remorse, like 2% of buyer. You, and I can't even classify it as buyer's remorse. There's 2% refund rates, but almost no buyer's remorse when people choose. So... It's weird. And and you don't need to have all these closing techniques if you do IBC correctly, because all of those closing techniques, although valid for sales, are unnecessary because people frequently ask me, so how do I buy this? Where do I get this? How do I how do I sign up for this? They're self-closing because mm-hmm. they chose. Mm-hmm. That's what they want. Yeah. So powerful. And I know in a previous conversation, if I'm remembering correctly, we had talked about like Costco and how Costco in like the big difference between them and everybody else. Maybe, maybe just instead of me explaining it, do you mind explaining what, what Costco does to, to kind of have a buying conversation versus a selling one? Well, it's actually constructed a buying model where they put out everything and you walk around and it's shopping, yes, but there's no people on the floor selling you anything. There's no no force to anything at any price point, okay? So even the high ticket items, you walk in there, you evaluate, you figure this stuff out. There are think, people that are now called research buyers. I actually had to coin that term like a few decades ago because research buyers are where the market is moving. Mm. And they'll buy. And it's simpler today because almost everybody jumps on the internet, sees where to go, what to do, and they want a buying experience and they want it live, not Amazon. They want it live. Go to Costco. They'll, the prices are competitive. And so they go for price. They go for the experience because people like that visceral feeling of buying stuff. 
it gives nice little endorphin boosts to the mm-hmm. brain. So anyway, so at the end of the day, it's all about the choice of purchase and that engages people at Costco because people choose and they have very, very low refund rates mm-hmm. at the end of the day. I mean, they only refund at Christmas time when somebody's bought something that they didn't buy for themselves. Right. Then you have the lineups for refunds. Awesome. Okay. So we've covered a lot of ground here. I really appreciate your time here, Blair. And I know we're, we got a, a cutoff in about 10 minutes here. So I figured an interesting thing to kind of talk about to, to kind of conclude this conversation is we've talked about mind models. We talked about igniting the buying conversation. And one of the things that you do when you're working, not with companies more so from my understanding, and when you're working with individual coaching clients and their mindset is that you know, you help people, these CEOs or entrepreneurs just have these massive breakthroughs in their company because of evolutions in their line of thinking. And that whenever you're growing to the next level in the company, it's, it's lots of the times it's just you working on the mindset. So, um, any, any insights you want to share in working with the entrepreneurs you worked with kind of the, the high level upgrades that you can kind of make if people are looking to get into the next level in their business when it comes to their minds mindset. When they are stuck in their mindset, um, the probability is every time you double the size of your business, you have to change how you think. Okay. It's a rule of thumb. And, and, you know, there are, there are transition points that you can see, you know, right through to billions of dollars in size of companies. Every time you double the size of your business, you have to change your business model, but you also have to change how you think. Mm -hmm. And if your people aren't changing how you think or how they think, and you're not leading the way, then your leadership lags and you tend to purpose between peaks and valleys because you can't quite break through that next peak. You can get up there, but you you can't break through. One client example was a guy that he was, he is a broker here in my hometown. His name is Angus Waddy. He's given me permission to use him and his name, um, and his experiences, he had a $150 million book of business. He was stalled out for five years at that, between 150 and 200 million, and just bouncing sideways. He thought eventually he'd break through hard work, more effort, but he wasn't doing it. And I profiled him. I didn't know what his numbers were at the time, but he profiled out at somebody that was in that price range. So I just told him because that's how his mind was working. But he couldn't get, like, I, I, I knew that it was improbable for him to be even up to $250 million. So uh, he couldn't do it. So he wanted to get to half a billion. But he assumed that, you know, he had the team. He called his great team. I profiled his language pattern, and it just wasn't a team at all. It was likely just reasonably good people. <coughs> Pardon me. And at the end of the day, what we did is we got a, a contract and I um, got him up to half a billion. But I actually got all the mind models in to him where he got up to about 350 million. And we said, just keep going. for. And when you get to half a billion, give us a call because you'll stall out again. He hates it when I say this, but he was a little tight with his money. He didn't like spending it unnecessarily, which is good. Almost all very rich people have that tendency. And he just said, you know, Blair, I've been stalled out for nine months at half a billion. 
And I promised myself I was never going to get stalled out for more than a year again. And so I want to get to a billion. And I said, great, thank you. <laughs> I just about felt like saying, I told you so, because I did tell him, like, when you get there, you're going to stall and whatnot. But I didn't. I resisted. Um, but he hired us back, and um, I took him on again, and, and he got to a billion, actually over a billion now slightly. But he's comfortable at the numbers that he's doing, and that's where he wanted to just sort of pause. And uh, it's a great pause because he's making Boku bucks. So, so is it is it is it accurate to say that what was that conversation like when he's like, okay, I want to go to a billion? Was it kind of like, okay, all right, forget everything that you just learned. Here's the next level of download and next level of install. Is it is it kind of that abrupt when you kind of have to shift your thinking like that? No, it's not. It's okay. All the mind models that I taught you, here's the next level to them. Ah, okay. So here's how you now have to think. And he said, how come you didn't give that to me earlier? Because if I gave you this way of thinking at this level, you wouldn't have gotten to your half a billion. Sure. Because you got to do it in order. You have to recognize your own capacity and how to simplify. And everybody thinks it's more and more and more complex. And it's just the opposite. You have to, the bigger you get, the simpler it's got to be. So I think people got a taste today of just a few of the mind models. We talked about uh, the three E's. And so that's like a very good foundational component of them. Um, as we transition toward, towards the end here, Blair, where can people find out more if they want to learn the other mind models and figure out how they can begin to apply this to their lives? Well, I have a thing called the Blair Dunkley Experience on Facebook. And so people can join that, request to join the private group where I teach people mind models every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, and you guys can figure out the rest of the times. Um, and I do that weekly on Tuesdays. It's free. But I've got a book coming out, and here's the cover. It's going to be launched in the next 60 to 90 days. And that is the book cover yep. of Ultimate Mind Hacking. I was just going to say, for, for, for those listening, it's a, it's a beautiful cover with a colorful brain on it. So it would definitely pop off on the shelf. I love the cover. <laughs> and that's the book that you um, previewed. Mm-hmm. So Ultimate, for this, okay. Ultimate. And where do you, for, so uh, actually we'll, we'll make sure to time this episode, maybe when this, when this comes out so people can access it and that kind of stuff. But where, where do you have plans as to like where people can begin to access that? Or is that something we can add after the fact? Um, actually, there is uh, ultimatemindhacking.com that okay. when it comes out, it will be there. But I also have an IBC program coming up here shortly. And okay. so um, that one is going to be leveraging people uh, to the next level in, um, in sales. Like they, they, it's going to blow their minds because it's both simple and clear and concise and you learn the four-step method to be able to do that. And you also get really something that, that most marketers don't really quite comprehend, but there are only four fears. And everybody talks about pains, but pain doesn't actually motivate people to move. Fear does. Fight or flight. That's motion. Okay? Whereas pain, so many people have pains, and they just learn how to live with it. But we don't think about that because sales says, well, find their pain point and they'll move. No, find their fear points. 
And there are four fears that I've discovered over about 20 years of research that shows me every time anybody does any effective marketing, they almost always use these four words. And that is what I share with people in the course and show them how how to listen for that to come out of that person's mouth because that is their buy button. Awesome. And that they want to be understood around. Like they really want to be understood. And when they feel understood, they they go, oh my God, I can make a choice. I have choice. I have the power of choice. Because it's about problem solving. Yes, decision making is in there, but it's got to be an empowered decision, which actually is a choice. Love it. That's the cool thing about IBC. Yeah. Okay. Well, Blair, thank you so much. This has been incredible. I know this is just the tippy, tippy, tippy tip of the iceberg. Uh, and and we, we've, we've been uh, recording for about an hour now. So I know we have so much more. So obviously you're always welcome back if you want to share more. I really appreciate you already sharing always. with your always. audience. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Blair. I mean, I guess I know you got to get going right here, but if you can kind of put a, a, a wrap on this and people can only take away one thing, kind of uh, like put it on a bumper sticker, what would you want people to take away from this Three episode? Years. Guys, Start with effective versus ineffective, then move externally verifiable versus internally verifiable, and then evaluation versus judgment. You do that, just those three, with nothing else, it can change your life. Awesome. Thank you so much, Blair. This has been a blast, and I look forward to continuing the conversation and having you back in the future. Thank you so much. Hey, it's Brandon here again, and I have a quick favor to ask before you head off, and that is if you are listening to my voice right now and you are currently using either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would help me a ton if you could stop what you're doing, take five seconds to tap the number of stars that you think the show deserves. So if you're on Spotify, there's a place to add a star rating right underneath the name of the show, and if you're listening on Apple, just scroll down where you're seeing all the episodes and there's something that says tap to rate. Just tap the number of the stars that you think the show deserves. And you may not know this, but I typically spend over five hours of my own time each week just researching a guest on the show. And then there's the time that's spent recording the show, the intro, reaching out to new guests, and of course, all the editing, publishing, promoting that my amazing wife and high school sweetheart, Leah, helps me to manage. So all that to say, there's a lot that goes on just to get to the point where you listen to this episode. So if you appreciate the content and have 10, five to 10 seconds to spare, it would help a ton if you could leave a quick rating on the show. Extra credit if you choose to leave a review, but just tapping whatever stars you feel the show deserves helps a ton and it takes so little time. So whether you choose to do that or not, I so appreciate you and I'll talk with you soon.